Welcome to Lynn Cullen Live, talk radio without the static. Email your questions and comments to lynn at pghcitypaper.com. And now your host, Lynn Cullen. Hey, welcome to the show, and guess what? I brought my voice from yesterday. I'm sorry about it. I don't know what the heck's going on. Anyway, um, it's, uh, it's Tuesday, and that means Susan's here, and it happens to be July 31st, which is Susan's birthday, so stand back. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday, dear Susan. Happy birthday to you. <laughs> That's just about how I feel about it. <laughs> <coughs> well, happy birthday. Thank you. Welcome. Uh, I'm going deaf. That's all I have to say. About okay, that. yeah, me too, Amy. I need. I just need a little more volume in my headset. I can't. I can't hear a dang thing. Can you hear me again? Yeah, I can. I'm fine. It's just yeah. I just need a little more volume. Are you, you're in Green Bay, right? I am in Green Bay. Okay. Uh, just for a couple more hours, and I'll head back. Okay. <laughs> back and forth. Back and forth. Back and forth. Okay. Um, it's okay. It's really, you know, I got that drive down so yeah. pat that it, do, it just doesn't even, and it just takes a few hours, you know, so it's no big deal. Hey, I want to tell you, though, where was I? I was someplace talking to a guy I didn't know, um, and he said that he had visited, oh, he found out I was from Wisconsin, and um Actually, I just remembered who it was. It was a guy who's a, a big shot in, in town who I'd never met. He owns a, the biggest fish market. <laughs> Robert Woley, his name is. And I had bumped into him, and we were talking, and he asked me where I was from, and blah, 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 blah. And he said, you know, have you ever been to, and he gave the name of the mu- a museum. And I said, no. And he said, um, it's incredible. It's in Milwaukee. I said, you know what? I always just drive through Milwaukee, as you're about Milwaukee's to do. Milwaukee's a very neat city, yeah. But they did. I remember reading. They built a new art museum on the lake, on Lake Michigan. Mm-hmm. And this guy, who I imagine, by virtue of his wealth and standing and everything, has been all over the place, he said it blew him away. I just want to say that someday you might want to take a little detour and actually check it out. Okay. You can tell I she's not going to do in it. in Milwaukee a few times. Yeah, but, yeah, uh, okay. But, I mean, he, he yeah. really said it was amazing. He said totally changed Well, his you know, a lot of people from Chicago, when they just can't take it anymore, move to Milwaukee. Yeah. Because it's a... It's a uh, uh, more livable and equally segregated city. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, they don't move to Milwaukee. They move to White Folks Bay. Right. Right. There's a suburb called Whitefish Bay. White Folks Bay. Speaking of that, Susan, um, I just read an uh, email that came in, and it's from uh, a listener uh, who I think has been listening for some time, who totally, totally, totally disagrees with everything I say and always has. I don't know why he listens, but I find it interesting that he does. And on occasion, he writes me, and it's sort of always like a, uh, you know, it's like an email from another universe, from the other universe. And something I said yesterday prompted him to write, might be the longest thing he's ever written me. I'm not going to read it all, but I'll read uh, some of it. What uh, what set him off was I was talking about this report, uh, uh, this wonderful uh, piece written by Ezra Klein in Vox about how demographics, uh, the changing demographics of America, are in fact what's driving all of this uh, political division. It is the fear and fear of white America that they will. Um, that they're losing their country. <coughs> and um, it's really a fascinating article. Anyway, so I've got to share this with you, okay? They keep saying we got to know how these people think, and so here, here it is. And here, this guy, as I said, is able to listen to me. So I don't know, 
that makes him what? More open-minded than a lot of people? I mean, I don't listen to Fox News. He may be op more open-minded than me. He's whatever. <coughs> I never change anything about him, but here, here he goes. Interesting of how whites will become the minority in 20 years or so. I am aware of this and have been reminding my friends of it for years. So what to do? I recall you saying that one day progressive people, I wouldn't have said that because I hate the word progressive. I usually say liberals. One day progressive people will soon overwhelm conservatives purely through demographics. Yes, I can see myself saying that. As I remember you saying, he, and then he gives me a quote that he's just making up, but he remembers me saying, there continues to be more and more of us and less and less of you. Whoever said this was, whoever said this was your country anyway. I got news for you scared conservatives over 50 white Christian males. You lose. Now, that's interesting because he put that in quotes. I mean, I didn't say that exactly, but that's how he heard what I was saying. And I, I, can, mm -hmm. see me, I can see me saying something he'd hear like that, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah? Yeah. And he says this, and so shall it be. Well, I will be mercifully gone by the time the minorities take over uh, the daily operation of this nation. That's fine. Of course, I do fear for f future generations. My black friends <laughs> used to remind me that one day will come the revolution and we'll take this mother over. <coughs> That's fine, I would say to them. Only you know they're going to have to keep some white people around to keep the utilities going and the roads and bridges maintained. Naturally, they would then scoff and walk away. So again, what to do? I, again, will be gone and won't have to do anything. So blacks, Hispanics, Asians, women take the place over. Terrific. And maybe one day this land ends up like Rhodesia or South Africa, where uh, it is not reported here, but how whites are systematically driven from their homes, their farms, their business, literally chased and often killed by blacks with the sanction of black politicians. Blah, 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 blah. That goes on about that for a while. Then this. It will be a truly grand experiment when minorities rule the land in America, indeed, I see blacks and Hispanics battling for the dominance of the land. Put your money on the Hispanics, for they do know how to operate and keep things going. They will ultimately become the managers, engineers, and technicians needed to keep things going. By the time only God knows, by that time only God knows how politics will work out. The only thing for sure is this nation will become un unrecognizable to people still on the earth. The saving grace, if any, will come when the Asians are large enough in number to call in all the chips and decide to take things into their own hands. It will not be easy and it will be bloody as well. But again, they will do purely with sheer numbers and perhaps with help from abroad. As much as, as it is in China, their operatives will not ask about feelings nor comply with outrageous demands on part of whomever remains. They will simply lower a giant boot on all. And that will be the end. Well, yeah, can, can I just say, I think it's very interesting that he assumes that um, the people in power will automatically be as awful as white men. Well, I think that has always been what has feared. I mean, what has spurred well, the right, fear. They, he, he's afraid that they, they'll do to him the way yeah. he has treated <clears throat> everybody else. That's right. But I think that's what racists think. They know what we've done. They, it's somewhere in their heads, they know how horribly we've treated black people and, and minorities in this country. And the only way to escape, to escape the consequences is to keep your boot firmly on everybody's head. Right. And if that, by demographics, they eventually don't have enough boots and the other side gets the numbers, then... Well, they assume there'll be payback, which means all those black folks and Hispanics will, uh, yeah, chase us from our homes, openly uh, murder us, and, uh, and the government will look the other way. And, you know, I mean, 
it's not as if they can't. Ass- that's what they did to black that's people. Right. That is, and 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 as for South, you know, South Africa, and and what happened there, and many times, those people are trying to get the farms back that were stolen from them. Yeah. Those are tribal lands. You know, they were stolen from them. It's like the Indians saying, no, we don't want to live on our reservation. The Native Americans saying, we don't want to live on our reservations. We want our country back. Yeah. So, I mean, this, but the endemic racism in his response is just fascinating. It is. Telling black, his black friends that they got to keep some whites around to run the utilities because right, God knows because, you blacks are too stupid to do it. Because they're inferior and they wouldn't know how. Right. So there's racism one. Racism two, or an acknowledgement that these Hispanics that we now want to wall off because they're rapists and murderers, in fact, are extremely hardworking, capable people. Right? That's because he says right. they'll they be are, the man. Right. <laughs> A huge number of our very successful small business owners. Exactly. And not a few, not a few big business owners. Yeah. And then um, obviously the fear uh, that that I mean I think is sort of well grounded that Asians by their numbers and by their uh, evidence of hard work uh, will be uh, very uh, powerful. Um, and did he leave Muslims out entirely? Because that religion will take over the world as well. Right. There were no Muslims mentioned. But that's it. That's what he says. Well, great. Well, I just, okay, so that was the response. And uh, just passing it on. We have a call. Yeah, well. Well, I don't know. Yeah, I got nothing else to say either. I'm gonna, the one thing, though, the one line that he said is our country will be unrecognizable to anyone else on earth and I would suggest to uh, my emailer it currently is unrecognizable to anyone else on earth thank you Susan okay we have a call hi caller hi hi hey uh, please don't tell me the guy says he's a Christian too yes at the end Oh, well, he doesn't say he's a Christian, but I, here's what he says. In any event, none of this matters because it is all in God's will. Oh, there you go. There you go. That's the same shit that you hear all the time from these Trump supporters. I run into a couple of my son's mother-in-law and father-in-law. They're brutal. They love Trump. She says all the problems started when they took God out of the schools. Yep. That's when it happened. Yep. That's when it started. And I thought, my gosh. So I thought to myself, well, okay, let's have God's prayer. Let's see. We'll have a prayer for the Muslims. We'll have a prayer for the Jewish. We'll have whatever religion you are, we'll have a prayer. Then if you want to do it like that, okay, that's fine. But you can't say that your prayer as a Christian is the, that is the ultimate prayer, because it isn't. So if you want to do that, then everybody gets a shot at it. One yeah. week somebody gets there, next week, I mean, they want to do something like that. That's why these well, kids but are then so you're bad. always offending the atheists. Well, <laughs> you know, there's another problem. <laughs> but that's why these kids are so bad, she said. Yeah, it's absolutely. almost like listening to somebody that listened to Fox News and drank the Kool-Aid the whole gallon. Honest to God, I just, I had to walk away. I actually, I said, I can't listen to this shit anymore, and I left. <laughs> That's what I did. I could not take it anymore. I understand. I will not listen to those people. I don't. I don't want to hear what they have to say, and I just won't. We hear you. Understand? Yeah. Oh. We have our. Thank God, God. Thank God. God sent me in-laws of the uh, right political persuasion. <laughs> I mean, yeah. with my sons, with my sons, not with my husband. But, no, you know, but I mean, yeah, it's yeah. So, well, <laughs> I feel for you, and good for you for standing up. And uh, walking yeah, out. Yeah, yeah, thank yeah, you. Appreciate the okay, call. We'll thank you. you. Bye. Okay, bye. All right. Uh, uh, so I had an interesting, total change of subject, but I had an interesting uh, experience a uh, couple of days as Sunday. I was reading the New York Times, and I was reading the style section, and I was reading social cues. 
which is sort of a, is which is an advice column by written by a very uh, nice guy, and um, the second question was about uh, was was written by a woman who had three friends who were currently very ill with lung cancer, and uh, and every t- and when she talked about it to other people, they inevitably asked, did they smoke? And her question is, what can I say to these people? Why can't they just be sorry for me that I am, you know, about to lose three of my very good friends to a terrible disease? Why do they have to blame my friends for their illness? Uh, yeah, yeah. And, and, and Gaines, uh, Philip Gaines is his name, wrote, uh, wrote the uh, answer, and it was a nice answer, but I thought it was an ineffective answer, so... I, I look at the bottom of the page to see if there's a way to respond, and there is. And, and it's, uh, you know, as usual, you have to go on Facebook. But I went on Facebook, and I uh, joined a, a discussion group, and I wrote a post. And, and the post was simply that, um, you know, that I had a husband that died of lung cancer and that even people that knew him for years felt the need to ask if he smoked. And, and then I gave, you know, and then I suggested that there was more than one kind of lung cancer, and uh, smokers generally get small cell, and non-smokers ge- generally get non-small cell, and it's a far worse kind of cancer and kills most of the people that get it. Um, and, and then I suggested that no matter what terminal disease you might have, if as a visitor you feel compelled to ask a question that is shorthand for what did you do to deserve this. Exactly try to remember that you're there to make the person feel better and not to make yourself feel better. You know, and, good. I saw that art, I saw that article too and and found yeah, what was said wanting somehow. Wanting. I mean, I yeah. so I had to say something. So I you know, I just said please try and understand that no one has cancer, wants cancer whether they did anything quote to deserve it unquote or not. And and that all you should do is, you know, if you're visiting a, a friend so afflicted, is meet them where they are, remember that they are alive and kicking and still part of life. And uh, if you can't do that, stay away. Well, let me tell you what I got. Oh. I'm still getting. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, 150 positive responses. People agreeing with you. People agree. Not one nasty yeah. comment in the bunch. Sure. And and really such a warm and lovely group of people responding and carrying on this discussion and telling their own stories and their own, you yeah. know, and and having how they they all ran into this too. It was it was just very ame- you know it was amazing. It was an instant community. And I thought, you know, of all the times that I sit around, you know, reading nasty stuff, this was such an affirming. <laughs> That's great. That's good. Experience, you know. So That's after wonderful. after a day and a half of, of doing this, I finally said, you know, you are a lovely bunch of folks, and I can't possibly respond to each of you who sent me things. But, you know, thank you very much. I, I, somewhere in there I had said, if you want to learn more about my glorious husband, I gave him the name and told him how they could, you know, and said, Google him. You'll find his obit. Well, I can't tell you how many people did that and wrote, you know, about, uh, I'm a psychologist. I would have loved to take your husband's I mean, it was just wow. amazing. That's nice. See, that there's the Internet at its best. There's, uh, yeah, social media at its best. At uh, its best. Wow. You know, in, in I was just thinking that the other day I was with uh, some people and someone inquired about uh, a very sick woman uh, that the other person is, uh, you know, sees and, and 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 and, but there was that blaming thing that went on. This is a woman who has dementia and is very old, and um, it, what was said was, well. You know, she's really not doing very well at all, but, you know, she brought this on herself. You know, they say that she was always unsociable, not, you know, stayed to herself. And they say that, you know, you need social contact to keep your brain going. And I was thinking, my God, (laughs) my God. So here's somebody who's got dementia. She's in her 80s or 90s even. And... She brought it on herself. I mean, because she wasn't the life of the party. 
and, and what I mean that's ridiculous right I'm just sick of this stuff and people do it all the all time, the time. And, and, it's and what you ate what what you right. eat? You didn't exercise. That that's what a big part. What did you do to deserve this? Right. Because exactly. I don't want to get it, so I'm going to be careful. Right. So it's so in in at its bottom line, it is the most narcissistic, nasty way to respond to someone else's Pain. misfortune, which yeah. is to say, what the hell can I do not to end up where you, you are? are? Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, so, Suze, I've got a, just yeah. a word to a wise. Treat sick people like they're people. Exactly. Just take the sick out, and if it's your friend, just go visit your good old friend. Right. That's great advice. And if advice. it's not your friend, stay away. <laughs> <laughs> if you're just trying those people yeah. too. <laughs> yeah. Right. Exactly. Because well, you know, if they're not your friend and they're bedridden and can't run, you know, a lot of people who the poor sick person doesn't want to see come by and torture him. Right. <laughs> Let's get real here. Okay. Well, um, I've been doing pretty well, Susan, staying away from uh, the latest outrage du jour because I've decided that that's what he wants to, for us to constantly be ricocheting from thing to thing and you know and keeping us off balance so i i'm not talking a lot about him anymore no i was i was going to just point out that korea is currently constructing yeah. new icbm new, new missiles right <laughs> right right so, oh but i so thought that, we I, that went that was a successful trip. yeah i thought he yeah i thought he solved that no i guess yeah. not okay yeah um, and I'm glad to hear that collusion where there was no collusion, but if there was collusion. It's, an, it's not a crime. <laughs> That's their point. <laughs> they keep falling back, falling back, falling right. back. And I mean, technically, they're right. They're, there is no federal crime called collusion. Right, right. But you tie it to all the other crimes. And you get and conspiracy. You get conspiracy. Right. Right. Exactly. Right. right. So there, it's never good for the president to be hobnobbing with, you know, our, <laughs> our um, you know, most, most, uh, favorite enemy for the last, you know, three Ever. quarters century. Yeah. But anyway, um, I here's here's what uh, you know. If I had fall balls, would have frosted me this morning. Um, is uh, Linda Tripp as the heroine? I saw that Super Susan. Movie. I saw the headline, and I couldn't even go there. I didn't even think Linda Tripp. For those of you who can't remember that odious woman is the confidant of Monica Lewinsky, who essentially ratted her out. Uh, she wasn't the confidant. She was the entrapper. Well, you know, yeah, she I entrapped mean, her, and Monica trusted her and told her stuff. And right. That's right. Right, right. Um, so what was that? Was that in the – what paper was that in? That was the Washington Post, and if you read the article, you would be happy to find out that the writer was going, oi, and it is Linda Tripp who is casting herself as the oh. heroine of the Me Too movie. Oh, I see. She's now and saying And trying to pretend like it wasn't political. Um, and that she was just trying to expose corruption and, and protect poor little Monica. Monica. Oh, what? Uh, and, uh, but twice in the, in the you know, she was, she was giving a speech. And twice she was trying to say the difference between right and wrong. And she kept saying the difference between right and left. And then tried to correct herself and said, no, I mean right and left. And she went, no, I mean right and wrong. <laughs> but it's not political. I just think this but way. But it's not political. Right. And she was, it was so Freudian a mistake that her brain made her keep making it <laughs> as she tried to desperately correct it. God almighty. When you are lying. So I just want to be clear. For anyone that sees that headline and, and doesn't read the article, No. She is not a heroine of the Me Too movement. She is a user of women as bad as the men. I'm agreeing with you. Okay. Um, I came upon something in the sports pages today that I want to share. Um, I was talking uh, yesterday, Susan, about you know being part of a minority population, which is you know something that white people don't know. You know, and, and, right. and there's things that when you are in a minority population that white people never experience, including the thing I used as being a Jew is when, you know, a Jew's in the headlines and, and they did something wrong. And every Jew 
every Jew just cringes. Yeah, why do they have to be Jewish? Oh, God. Yeah, you just want... And um, that's not something a white person would ever, would ever do. Oh, my God, look at that white person. He did something terrible. And, you know, yeah, it, it look did, at that white Christian. He did something terrible. Yeah, right. Exactly. Because they don't suffer the collective guilt that, that always happens to people in, in minorities. So, and rather totally, deliberately refuse to even admit that it exists in many cases. That what even that 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 that, uh, that there's such a thing as as being discriminated against in you know culturally. Oh, so oh, yeah. Well, they don't even <clears throat> recognize it. So I I just say that because I'm bringing this up because it's about a um, a uh, baseball player who played in the 30s, uh, 1930s, and he um, he was Jewish. Now, there were a few Jewish ball players, not a lot. First of all, there're not a lot of Jews. So, but it's whenever there's a Jewish athlete, Jews just go nuts. They do. Do we not? We do. Okay. So, the most famous Jewish baseball players are uh Hank Greenberg and Sandy Koufax, without a doubt. Those are the two biggies. But there was another uh, named Mo <laughs> Mo Berg, and he was um, a catcher for various teams. He wasn't all that good. He played with the Boston Red Sox. He played with uh, New York uh, somebody's, and um, he played in the in the in the thirties. But the New York Times did a piece on him today because he's long gone. But Mo Berg who batted, lifetime batting average was 243, <laughs> and um, who never played a full season with the same team, uh, it, it was not somebody who was ever going to end up in the Baseball Hall of Fame. But he is. They have a special exhibit now, opening in Cooperstown at the Baseball Hall of Fame for Mo Berg, and it's because of what he did while he was playing and then after his career. Mo Berg, it turns out, was a CIA operative. And there wasn't a CIA back then. It was the OSS, the precursor to the CIA. But Mo Berg was uh, a Princeton graduate, Columbia Law School graduate, and then he became a pitcher, major league pitcher. And uh, there was a time when uh, major league players traveled to Japan in the 30s to do some, you know, baseball exhibitions in Japan in 34 and, and 32. Moberg was part of the team. He didn't see a lot of play, but he had also taken with him his handy Bell and Howell movie camera, and he would disappear into Tokyo and film shipyards, military <laughs> installations, industrial complexes, all this kind of stuff while he was a baseball player. And then during the war, he was flat out uh, an OSS agent. Listen to the languages he spoke. French, Spanish, Portuguese, some Italian, German, and Japanese. He had traveled to China, Burma, Iran, Syria, Egypt, Pakistan, Palestine, Germany, Crete, and England. He was all over wow. the place. Mo Berg. And here's the most celebrated Mo Berg uh, spy story. He was sent in 1944 to go to Zurich for, to attend a lecture by a German physicist named Werner Heisenberg. And Werner Heisenberg, the OSS feared, was in fact about to give the Nazis the atomic bomb. He had won the 1932 Nobel Prize. Berg was told 
to attend this lecture, obviously undercover, posing not as an American, what it is, and he was armed, and he was told to shoot Heisenberg if there was any reason that he suggested in this lecture that, in fact, they had the bomb. At any rate, he did not assassinate Heisenberg. He did not fire his gun. But um, at one point, the people in the OSS were on him to, like, run for baseball commissioner. And he said, nah, it's not my, I don't want to do it. He was awarded, by the way, the... Um, Medal of Freedom uh, after the war, and he turned it down. Wow. He said, I do so with due respect for the spirit with which it was offered. He s never explained why. He just wow. said no. That's Mo Berg, yeah. not the greatest uh, major league player, but he's got a whole exhibit all to himself now at the Baseball Hall of Fame. Cool. Isn't that a great story? Yeah. It's a wonderful story, but I'm afraid I'm going to have to go leave at least for a bit. Okay. Go ahead. Well, um, the doorbell rang and someone is here. And okay. I go, 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 go. Talk go. to him. Okay. Go. Okay. Go. Bye. 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 Okay. Um, okay. And while we're doing obits, oh, that's not an obit. That was, he's dead already, but I don't have his obit. I got obits up the wazoo. I always get the feeling of, Susan doesn't love obits, but I was sorry to see this. Ron Dellums, uh, who was a U.S. member of Commer Co Congress for a long, long time, and a guy I always thought was totally cool, has died at the age of 82. Um, he, he left Congress, uh, I don't know, some time ago. He hadn't been there for a while. But this was a guy, he came, he represented Berkeley. <laughs> so to say he was like liberal is, uh, you know, hardly, hardly surprising. Uh, he, he, his big thing was he was just against the war, against any war, against military intervention. He was just a classic liberal. Ron Dellums is the one who wrote uh, the 1986 legislation that mandated trade embargoes and disinvestment from South Africa. This was a campaign that he had worked on for 14 years. He kept at it, kept at it doggedly. It went nowhere, it went nowhere, it went nowhere. And then finally in 86, it was passed only to be vetoed by President Ronald Reagan. That veto went back to the Congress, and unbelievably, the veto was overridden, which was apparently the first time in the 20th century that a presidential veto in regard to a foreign policy had ever been overridden. That was Ron Dellums at the helm of that. He voted against every new weapons program, every military budget under all six presidents that uh, served while he was uh, in Congress. He was a founder of the Congressional Black Caucus. And um, astonishingly, uh, he was, this anti-war guy, was the head of the House Armed Services Committee, the chair of the House Armed Services Committee uh, for, I don't know how many years, but he was. He was the first uh, African-American to hold that post, and he was the first anti-war activist to hold that post. He, uh, he retired in 1998. That's what I couldn't find uh, earlier. Um, and speaking of baseball, he, as a young man, played baseball very well in, in um, high school. And guess who his teammates were? Jackie Robinson and Kurt Flood, <laughs> who I suspect are both in the Hall of Fame, along with Moberg. Um, Went to the Marine Corps, the GI Bill of Rights got him to a community college, and he ends up doing going what blah 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 till he gets a uh, 
master's in social work from uh, University of California, Berkeley, and, uh, and he's off and running. So Ron Dellums, uh, good man, uh, lived a good life. Another, I have one more obit for you. This is a guy whose name we don't know, Herman Schein. Um, he was one of a very rare group indeed. He escaped from Auschwitz. He escaped and lived. There were escapes, but they didn't live. He escaped and lived, making him one of only two, fewer than 200 people. And when you realize that 1.3 million people were sent to Auschwitz, uh, the biggest death mill in the Nazi machine, or machine and 1.1 million died there. So almost everybody who went there died there. Some survived in the camp, very few. And even fewer, as I said, fewer than 200 managed to escape and to tell the tale. And Herman Schein did, along with his pal, uh, somebody Drimmer, they were f friends and they somehow stuck together through it all and, uh, and managed an escape. I, the escape is, uh, was a result of a, a, um, a non-inmate, a Polish worker who uh, Auschwitz would employ some people who weren't in the camp to come in and do some labor and then would be able to leave, go home. And uh, one such was a, a guy named Joseph uh, Rona. And he befriended uh, Shine's friend, Drimmer. And the Pole heard, overheard SS talking this is 1944, overheard that they were going to liquidate um, the remaining laborers. And he warned his friend, they're about to kill you all. And he said, I think I could get you out. And so, and again, any time someone who w didn't have to be there who was willing to try to save one of these hapless beings. It is so mind-blowing because very few of us, very, very few, would ever do it. Because to do so is to risk, literally, your life and to risk your families lives and potentially your villages lives he got them out he managed to hide them in the camp for a work shift smuggle in civilian clothing caps to put over their shaved, lice-written heads, and they were able to get out. They were stopped by a Nazi on their way to this guy's house. Uh, they talked their way through that. Eventually, though, it was clear they were in danger staying at his house, and they went to another place where another woman, who later married Mr. Shine, um, saved them. And um, 
these two guys ended up both going to the United States together with two women who stood with them through thick and thin, and uh, they got married together <laughs> and uh, were relatively inseparable. The pole, Joseph Rona, was um, honored as any that are identified are uh, in as a uh, righteous among the nations is what it's called at uh, Yad Vashem, which is the Holocaust Memorial in in Israel. I was the reason I say few of us would do such a thing is because it's. It's uh, measurable, <laughs> and very few people, even nice people, good people, will not do that, will not risk. I suppose more might risk their lives, but very few would risk their children's or their spouse's life. And you gotta wonder what kind of people are willing to do that. They're better than most. And there aren't a lot of them. Because one thing I learned by um, <coughs> watching that documentary I told you about, about called Fighter, about the guy who, who um, survived uh, the war and ended up, the, this was a Czechoslovakian who survived the war and then ended up actually uh, uh, in the British Royal Air Force. Um, his friend, who's a novelist, said, who was in Auschwitz and survived, said, it's quite clear that in times such as the Nazis come in and take your country, the fascists come and they start taking people away, that the vast majority of people simply look the other way. Even if they know what's going on, they simply, they tell themselves, there's nothing I can do. And he says, I don't, and this guy said, I don't blame them for it. It is built in. It is called a survival instinct. And so he managed to pull it away from some kind of a moral judgment, which I tend to make, but that our innate instinct to stay alive tells us to keep our heads down, don't interfere, stand on the sidelines. And again, that's what makes people like this Joseph Rona and all of the others just such remarkable people. They're going against their own human nature. There is somehow something in them that is working on a higher plane, I guess. Pretty, pretty amazing. I'm always blown away. And you know, these Holocaust stories are getting down to, they're really, because there aren't going to be any of these survivors left very soon. And don't think that the bad guys are going to move into that. They're already, they've never stopped. You know, it didn't happen, it wasn't that bad, blah, blah, blah. Boy, they will own, they will own the territory then. I hate the Electoral College. The Electoral College is a huge uh, impediment to our democracy um, because it takes some Americans' vote and gives it much greater weight than other Americans' vote. And that seems to me to throw, throw everything else that we supposedly are told about how our government works up into the air. 
I mean, if somebody living in Montana has a vote that essentially weighs four times more than somebody's vote in California, then something is wrong. And I don't see how anyone could suggest otherwise. And it's going to get worse. The Electoral College is going to continue to, I think, make it very difficult for the majority of Americans to elect a president. Because, in fact, the majority of Americans did not elect George W. Bush twice, did not elect Donald Trump, right? Did not. In all three of those elections, the Democratic candidate had millions more votes. And so to argue that the Electoral College is anything but anti-democratic is, uh, I think, an impossibility. But this is, gives us even more reason for concern because uh, the Washington Post reported this the other, maybe last week, Again, this is demographic stuff. In 20 years, 22 years to be specific, in 2040, half of the U.S. population will live in just eight states. 50% of the population will live in eight of the 50 states. And if you broaden that out just a little bit more, 70% of the population will live in 16 states. So the majority of states will be states that are holding all the rest of the population. 16 states will have 70% of the population. Eight will have 50% of the population. And when it comes to the Electoral College, forget it. Because all those other states, the 25-plus other states, will be over-represented in the Senate, God knows. I mean, I don't know, how many millions of people does uh, Dianne Feinstein, as a senator from California, represent? And how many does, like, John Tester, Heidi Heidekamp, from, from those big square states there in the northwest, northern mountain states. How, how, how many do they represent? A few thousand? <laughs> Serious. 10,000? 20,000? How many people are in some of those states? There's nobody there. All right, it's more than that, but not much. And... In California, millions and millions and millions. This is a totally unfair system. I'm just saying. So I, I did um, say, I think when Susan was on, she hasn't come back, huh? I wonder who was at the door, a kidnapper? <laughs> I think I know, actually. Susan is involved in keeping track of the, the, the business that my father uh, left. And um, I got a feeling it's, yeah, business talk that they're engaged in. And she's the only one who understands any of it. So, um... I do pay attention. It's, uh, it's not easy, is it? But uh, there's two little bits that I just want to 
acknowledge, you know, that I am paying attention and that uh, the the outrage du jour is, uh, you know, it's it's so constant that, but it's important to remember that these guys are really really busy. Uh, even as we speak, more federal judges are being. He will go. Where did I hear this? Oh my God, it was something. God. Obama, in his eight years as president, appointed something like 24, 28 judges to the federal court? Is that possible in eight years? Trump, who doesn't even have two years in, is over 40 federal judges and climate. This was the this was the deal that the establishment Republicans made with this carnival barker that they allowed to uh, hijack their party. They said, "Okay, all right, okay, we'll get behind you, but this you promise us. We're going to give you a list vetted by the Federalist Society and." Uh, and the Heritage Foundation and other people who check the litmus paper. And uh, you will appoint Supreme Court judges, justices, and also federal judges from this list. And uh, Mitch McConnell will ensure that these people breeze through. So we're just, this is something you're going to do for us. Um, as if he's not doing enough for them. Uh, so after his his big tax cut thing, did you see that he's now saying he wants to give another tax cut to the rich? A hundred billion dollar tax cut to the rich. And it wouldn't touch most people because it's about capital gains. And he wants to fiddle with how that's calculated, that tax, meaning that they won't have to pay anywhere near as much tax on the money they acquire from already being rich. Now, normally, Congress does tax stuff, yeah? Trump, who really doesn't like being told, well, you can't do that. That's something that the Congress has to do. Or you can't do that. There's a law that says you can't do that. He really thinks being president is being king. And so he wants these capital gains taxes cut. And so he is now intending, apparently, to cut capital gains taxes without going through Congress. He and his Treasury Secretary Mnuchin are thinking there might be a way to do this by changing the definitions of some words and just making it as some kind of a um, regulatory reset or a grammatical definitional reset. They're just looting everything they can get their hands on. Also, why we aren't looking, now we do know we got rid of the jerk at EPA, but the guy who took his place is every bit as noxious, just not as personally corrupt. But he firmly uh, believes in everything that Scott Pruitt was, was doing. Turns out that the guy who's been nominated by Trump to be the assistant administrator at the EPA and as such would be overseeing the Superfund program. You know what that is. That's the program that was initiated, I think, in the 70s when we finally woke up and were told that big business had essentially polluted um, rivers and 
uh, land and everything they could air and all this stuff and uh, it, it was still toxic and it was killing people so the Superfund was created and this Superfund goes in and cleans up the messes made by the greedy capitalists. Trump has put in charge, has nominated a guy named Peter Wright. He knows all about this Superfund stuff. You know why? Because he worked all his life for Dow Chemical, one of the polluters, the maker of dioxin, which <laughs> poisoned God knows how much flora and fauna on Earth. And in fact, Peter Wright was known as the dioxin lawyer. He now will be in charge of the Superfund. You know, when that means he'll oversee the response to chemical spills. If citizens are complaining about toxic dumps here and there, he will decide whether it rises to the level of uh, government moving in and doing anything. The, I mean, utter boldness with which Republicans put wolves in the hen house never fails to it, astonish is not the right word anymore just blow my mind they're so right out front about it it's amazing well I was hoping Susan would come back. I have a thing about dogs here I wanted to share with her because I wanted to see if she thought Ernie would pass this test. But uh, I'll leave it. Another thing I'm wanting to talk about, not really, but a little bit, is are, are you a, the Miss America pageant? Have we spoken at all about the Miss America pageant getting rid of the swimsuit competition? I mean, what's the point? You're not going to make those women parade around in their underwear and high heels? What the hell's the point? You know who took over Miss America? Gretchen Carlson. Does that name ring a bell? Late of Fox News, Gretchen Carlson the woman who took down Roger Ailes. Gretchen Carlson, who was an anchor there and who was a former Miss America. Uh, Gretchen Carlson has become the, I don't know if it's executive director or whatever of, uh, of Miss America, and the first thing she did was get rid of the swimsuit competition. And... Um, Needless to say, all hell has broken loose. There are 22 Miss America chapters, that would mean 22 state organizations, that have signed a petition, you know, wanting her out. There's open rebellion among Miss Americas who still get together on occasion. Um, there are some that support her, but not many. And so... I would say, I mean, what she's trying to do with the Miss America pageant, I think, would destroy it. I mean, I, what's the point then? <laughs> what was the point of the Miss America pageant? I'm serious. I mean, as a little girl who grew up watching it and who was, I mean, I would get so excited when the Miss America pageant was on. I would look at them and I would desire, and I was one of millions of girls, generation after generation after generation, who dreamt of holding that scepter and that cape put on 
walking down that runway with Bert Parks singing, There she goes. Yeah? What would be the point if it's not about who's the prettiest, who's got the best bod, who can put two sentences together and, you know, and, and, and not screw things up? What would be the point of a Miss America that didn't do what the Miss America pageant always has done? I mean, why would you bother? I mean, Gretchen Carlson, I think, wants to make it almost into a, uh, you know, I don't know. She says it's a scholarship program, and so what? It should be like, you know, entering, uh, you know, putting in a, I don't know. It doesn't make any sense to me at all. So I just want to say I, as a feminist, say I just think it's over. The Miss America pageant, if it can't be the absurdity that it always has been and the anachronism that it always has been, then there's no reason for it because there's no way to remake that into anything. But I bring this up all too late. Because our time is up. I thank you very much for being with us. I thank my sister. And um, I'll see you all tomorrow, okay? Bye. Lynn Cullen Live, Monday through Friday from 10 a.m. to 11 a.m. and archived at pghcitypaper.com. The opinions expressed on Lynn Cullen Live are those of the host and do not necessarily reflect the viewpoints of Pittsburgh City Paper or its advertisers.